0: Good morning and welcome to Being Crisis Prepared, the BCP podcast from Inverroi Crisis Management. Uh, today is the 22nd of November and uh, with me is uh, Toby Ingram calling in from Paisley. Toby, good morning.
1: Good morning, Matthew. How are things today?
0: Yeah, all is good. All is good. Uh, and I'm conscious that we have a, an action-packed, um, if that's possible, uh, podcast. Lots going on in the world uh, that we'd like to talk about today. Um, so if you'll forgive me, we'll crack straight in, uh, and we wanted to talk about three topics, uh, in the main today. One is, uh, the, the incidents of flooding both in the UK and Venice and, and some of the thoughts around that. Uh, secondly, uh, Toby will then be talking about, um, some issues in the higher education, uh, sector around the world. Uh, then we wanted to have a look at, very quickly at uh, global unrest and what that might mean for supply chains um and finish with a couple of thoughts from the BCI conference if we have time toby was that about right anything i've missed
1: i think you're building to a perfect length
0: okay perfect uh, and in which case we'll we'll start with with some thoughts on the flooding um situation uh Many people will have seen the news, I am sure, uh, both in the UK and Venice. The UK largely centred around Doncaster, the River Don. um, Names that came up in this recent flooding incident were the towns of uh, Doncaster and then uh, Bentley and uh, Fish Lake, which are all, roughly speaking, South Yorkshire. Um, Pretty harrowing pictures of, of people being flooded out of their homes, estimates of 600 plus properties um, uh, affected and over a thousand people evacuated, uh, some for some time. Um, And as we're speaking at the moment, the the issue is now turning more towards the recovery afterwards for these individuals um, and obviously also the businesses that were in that area as well. And one article I read talked about uh, an organization called Reread which is effectively uh, recycling books based in Doncaster and over 100,000 of their books destroyed as a result of um, the floodwaters. Uh, Other side of the coin for individuals, um, it's estimated in Fish Lake by uh, the local vicar that 27% of houses, so roughly one in four, were uninsured. Um, Some houses now are looking as though they may need to be demolished uh, insurance excess increasing up to 7,500 for your first claim, and insurance cover looking at in the order of 250 pounds per month. Um, so, you know, all pretty harrowing. And there are still, as at yesterday, 55 pumps in operation pumping uh, in the order of 15 tons of water a second. Out of the fish lake um, and surrounding areas, so so pretty harrowing um, figures, and you only have to go on the news to see streets lined with um, damaged furniture, carpets, etc. And and it just struck me that you know, one is the time that it's going to take for the insurer to get around and and inspect the damage if you are insured. Secondly, how many plumbers plasterers decorators heating machines are there to to do that relatively small area and classic supply and demand if there isn't enough supply then price goes up Um, all at the time when people are desperately trying to get themselves sorted get back into their accommodation so that they continue work children can go to school and everything is of course it floods in the winter which is the worst possible time to think about moving into a caravan for a short notice, um, short period, if you can find one in the local area that allows you to carry on doing your your, your work. Um, so lots of disruption there, which does have an impact on everyone's lives. But if you're a business, on your employees' lives. And therefore, I you know, pitch all of that and um, just wondered, Toby, if you had any thoughts on the sort of what might we be able to do that's a huge opening comment sorry but uh, it's quite a big topic and it seems to come up over and over again
1: it's it it is a big topic and it's happened every year for certainly I think the last decade whether it's Cumbria Carlisle Yorkshire the south these floods do happen and climate is changing and this is what is happening I think the interesting point from what you've said is that how many assumptions are now being challenged. So the assumption that you can insure your house against flood is being challenged because the prices are becoming out of reach for an increasing number of people. Even if you are able to insure your house and claim against damage, if there simply aren't enough plumbers, plasterers, decorators, builders go around, you're going to be living for a considerable period of time in a very, very disrupted house, which is emotionally very traumatic for anybody because it's your home. And I think in to, to take that a stage further, um, if we look at the recent story from The Guardian about Fairbourn in Wales, Gwynedd Council, which is the local council, in the first case of its type, has decided and publicised that it can simply no longer defend the village of Fairbourn, which is between the sea and the mountains. So it gets threats from seawater, but also threat from increased rain runoff. And Gwynedd Council are planning to move the eight hundred and fifty residents out of their houses by 2050 or sooner if the sea breaches the defences. And first of all you would you would say utmost sympathy goes out to the to the villagers of Fairbourne because this is their home. Many of them have not grown up there but moved there because it's an idyllic um, location Yeah, lovely spot yep. Founded by the uh, flower mogul MacDougal and clearly now that this announcement has been made you cannot sell a house there you, you just can't drop the price low enough nobody's going to buy there so in many cases people's life savings are invested in their real estate and the value of that investment has pretty much reached zero now because you'll never be able to to sell it.
0: Sorry, so let me get and this right. They're saying that that village from 2050, the sea will just take it over? It'll just become... It will
1: It will be returned to salt marsh. You take out... The, the, the phrase that's being used is they're going to decommission the village, which means you remove everything. People, houses, every trace of infrastructure, and the sea comes back in.
0: With no compensation?
1: With no compensation and no resettlement plans, it's just you're on your own, and it's not from 2050; it's by 2050.
0: Uh, And is this unique, or is this have we picked up?
1: This is the first case of its type. But the UK Committee for Climate Change reported last year that 530,000 properties on the coast of England are at a similar sort of risk, and 104,000 properties in Wales. So not only is this problem not gonna go away, it's going to increase wow. in, in scale. And uh, you know, so heartfelt sympathy to the residents affected. With my business head on, I would say well done Gwynedd Council in Wales because this is top quality horizon scanning and it's a willingness to take really, really unpalatable, really difficult decisions. And um, I understand how upsetting that decision is for residents of Fairbourne, who who are protesting against it at the moment, but you would have to, in the same breath, acknowledge that's very far-sighted and that's very uh, strong leadership and decision making because it's a huge decision.
0: Yeah, and that's an issue that we we um, bemoaned before, isn't it? That uh, you know, delaying these decisions isn't going to change the the factors that that affect the decision. Um, and I remember we we spoke about uh, I think it was the is he called the first minister in Wales um, uh, delaying a decision about widening the M4 in in South Wales because it was too expensive. Well, guess what? I can't see it ever getting any cheaper. So you know this is by giving them thirty years notice. Um, I guess that's proper horizon scanning, isn't it? Yeah.
1: It it, it is, and a decision that nobody would want to make and that nobody would welcome. But I think Gwynedd Council have set the set the example here because if the figures from the Committee on Climate Change are to be believed, this problem is going to happen more and more. And whilst we've always had the concept of managed retreat from the sea, which allows an area that was not previously exposed to flooding to become flooded by removing coastal protection, but in previous years that's only happened in low-lying estuarine areas where there has been no population
0: okay so I think I've heard that before in Essex
1: yes uh, the tolls we cite in Essex
0: yeah so Um, so really interesting and and, half a million properties therefore several million people potentially being displaced and needing to find houses elsewhere Already pressure on the property market, yeah, 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 and so it goes on. So um, again, perhaps one to one to watch. Um, just just bringing us back to, to house properties and sorry, and flooding in in Yorkshire. The um, you know, I guess the the thing that people can do if they are in that sort of area, flood risk area, if you have something of value, but it's a bit like the the fire thing. You know, for example, photographs that you can't replace. It's that scan them in to your um, computer system, put it on the cloud so that even if you've lost the original, you haven't lost the image and you can get it reprinted. And, you know, absolutely. And it's that absolutely. thinking through what is it that I've got that is absolutely irreplaceable. And and I appreciate you know, the, the short term, you know, five, 10 years of stress to financially be able to replace what it is that you've currently got and you've lost, but you can never go back and get that yeah, um, image again, uh, and things like birth certificates, marriage certificates, yeah, um, property ownership documents—all uh, of that can be scanned in now and saved. And it may not have the original signature on, but it's a—it's a, it's a darn sight better than not having anything at all. Same with passports; all of that can be can be saved. It's a bit of a faff, but if you live in a in an area that could be flooded. Why would you not do that? Um, and just to finish us off, um, the other th- thought that I had was when you were talking about our previous um, assumptions. Uh, picking up on the Venice piece, uh, I read that St Mark's Basilica has been flooded for the sixth time in one thousand two hundred years, which sounds well. That's you know, that, that's all right. Until you read on and see that, but four of those six occasions have been in the last twenty years. So so what we have previously thought of as a one in 500 year occurrence is now happening every four years or four to five years, Um, which is a massive difference in our planning assumptions of how high our flood defences need to be. um, Because what we have previously thought of as, oh, it's okay. It's a one in 50 year. It's a one in 100 year event. Is now happening on almost an annual basis, and therefore all previous assumptions are are invalid. And when it comes well, to
1: not not necessarily invalid, but need to be re-examined.
0: Yes, okay. Um, but therefore, when it comes to okay, so what? Do or your does your local authority have the money to to change their flood defences to improve them? Um, you know, at the moment, it's autumn. I don't see much sign of local authority having the money to to empty the drains of of leaf mulch, let alone rebuild um, major flood defences. So if the local authority can't do it, then it comes down to the individual. Hang on a second. This is my house. This is my business rather than sit on the fence and wait for it to happen. Um, Because as we've just said, insurance premiums, if your first insurance claim you have to pay the first seven and a half thousand pounds. Well, why wouldn't you want to spend a few thousand pounds making sure that you never have to make that claim? Um, it's all part of that mix now. And I think the the game is changing um, and it needs to be reassessed in the, that new light. Anyway, I'm conscious that we spent 15 minutes on, on that nearly, and we've got much to talk about. Unless there's anything else, Toby, on that?
1: No, I think, I think we will leave water there. There's, there's lots more to talk about, about national water management, national infrastructure management.
0: Yeah. Um, uh,
1: but I think we'd probably leave that for another day.
0: Yeah. And rest assured, our thoughts are with the people of Yorkshire um, and of Venice. Uh, and I know that they have great response capability and uh, they have a, a Yorkshire prepared uh, Twitter feed and so on that, that is is doing good stuff. Um, okay, Toby, you wanted to talk about higher education.
1: Thank you, Matthew. There's some interesting uh, articles, news stories come up recently, and higher education is turbulent, as most sectors are. We're expecting a university and college union strike both next week and in the new year. Um, the issues in play are both pensions and pay and conditions, and the as, as always with these situations, there is largely equal arguments on both sides and students will be affected because um, there's a battle over compensation for lost teaching time. Students won't necessarily get feedback on their coursework. Some exams will be disrupted. And I know you're running an exercise next week with the AQA and it'd be very interesting to s- test that as a disruption for them. As to what do they do if you simply don't get exam scripts? Where's the what's the continuity plan? We're also warned uh, in September that there could well be large-scale student protests against Brexit, Um, and because of course the first, second, and third years are almost all now too young to have voted in the 2016 Ah, referendum. So there's an element of disenfranchisement there, and looking wider afield we have seen uh, the french government coming under pressure after a student set himself on fire in protest and wow. uh, as we do a number of uh, uh, as we provide business continuity support for a number of higher education institutions that's a scenario that we are going to run on their exercises in future because it's a, it's a different kind of fire
0: yeah sorry so so this May, male, female. Anyway, this this person was so aggrieved at at an issue that they set themselves on fire. They did. Wow. Um,
1: it it was attempted suicide to uh, to protest the hardships of university life. Twenty two year old suffered ninety percent burns on his body after attempting to take his own life outside a university building in Lyon, in southeast France. He lost his student grant, and uh, he remains now in serious condition in the hospital. So, a tragic, tragic incident. Yeah. Um, and he blamed it on policies pursued by France's leader and their higher education sector. So, just an example to highlight that, as I said, the sector has a certain degree of turbulence in it, which perhaps, if you're not um, intimately involved in it, you you it may pass you by. So. In terms of where the sector is going, I'd like to, if I may, explore briefly 5G and artificial intelligence in higher education. Okay. Um, a quick rundown for those of you who have forgotten, like me. 1G was analog voice, 2G was digital technology and short messaging service, 3G was the mobile internet, 5G was high speed, sorry, 4G was high speed mobile broadband.
0: Which is what we've got now, Yeah.
1: Yeah, 5G coming into the large parts of the UK next year is the fifth generation mobile phone network, much faster, much more reliable, greater capacity, much shorter response times and often referred to as the network of things or the internet of things and offers super fast mobile broadband with no need for landlines, super smart factories, lower latency, car to car and car to infrastructure communication and... um, It solves the problem of the existing spectrum bands becoming congested. It's much better at handling thousands of devices simultaneously. And some of the benefits are the um, workers are going to be able to remote work more easily, to operate machinery from afar. Remote surgery is going to be enabled with doctors controlling robots from somewhere else in the world. Monitoring, controlling devices, uh, which means that humans don't have to go into high risk situation. Apps okay. um, faster travel through automated transport, but there are huge opportunities here for higher education because you can deliver so much more in such a different environment. So the traditional university model is that you go and you're resident at a university, and you listen to a lecture, you go to a seminar, you write an essay, you get it marked, you do an exam. Sure. The What 5G and other technological advances might enable in the future is something like Russia's University 2035 programme, which aims to massively boost its higher education achievement. And the University 2035 model has no buildings, no walls, no desks, no chancellors, no exams and no degrees it's powered entirely by ai tools and teaching methods which can be applied all the way from the primary school right through to higher education and mass retraining of the older generation mm-hmm. and it it changes how we think about universities it links in very closely to the massive open online courses initiative which um, and massive online open courses moocs online courses unlimited participation via the web, it provides interactive courses, um, and interactive professors and teaching assistants, and therefore we may be looking at the entire university experience as we know it, changing quite radically, and again it comes back to your point that old assumptions are going to be challenged. If you can imagine from a higher education point of view if you, as a, if you're running a higher education uh, institution, you're worried about your infrastructure. You're worried about welfare of students, care of people, water, fire, flood, pestilence, protests. Yep. What if you were able to set up a university that had none of those worries because it doesn't physically exist? It's all 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 of the teaching and discussion and tutoring is done on VR headsets enabled by 5G. And other superfast internet, then all of those resources that are sucked up by main- maintaining your buildings and doing health and safety and insurance and utilities and security can actually be devoted to the learning. Yeah. Now, you and I, Matthew, because we are so old, will say, "Ah, oh, but that's not what universities about." That you know, universities about. Uh, going to somewhere you haven't been before, living independently, living amongst a group of people your own age and having a whale of a time. But I just question whether we we only um, get nostalgic about that because it's what we experienced. And if you are a a young person growing up now, you you may not miss that because you never had it. And you may really gravitate towards this new form of university along the Russian 2035
0: Uh, model. I I think you're absolutely right. You know, interestingly, we've discussed before, you know, what's the future of a book? What's the future of a library? Um, you know, and it, it all fits in together, doesn't it? That if, if nothing needs fixed assets anymore, other than your kitchen table and a headset um, you know, and broadband you know, 5G, suddenly I can be enrolling on a course based out of you know, notionally Sydney, Australia, but with lecturers from all over the world giving me the, the world's leading lecturers, amazing graphics um, and all the rest of it for probably the same cost as I would pay to go to a, a UK university and attend a, a course by the time you've added in tuition fees and rent to go and you know, £500 plus a month for rent to go and live in somewhere that just to attend a course. Um, Absolutely, and...
1: Current universities or higher education institutions are largely limited by physical capacity. You can only accommodate so many students, you can only teach so many physically, but imagine if you were able to employ three times as many lecturers as you employ now without having to accommodate them, and therefore imagine being able to teach three times as many students, including the really high value ones like graduate students who do your research, without any increase in net cost. Suddenly, you're in a different game.
0: Yeah, and I guess there may be some courses that that you obviously need to keep fully up to date and may change every year. Other courses, once you've done it once, there may be bits that you can um, use many times. So not every topic. If I'm studying something from the 1700s, the view of what it means and its relevance to to today may change, but the actual hard facts don't change. So you're not reinventing it every year and starting from scratch, which again, over time, would be a saving. So no massive cultural change to um, universities and all the problems of uh, how do they maintain their infrastructure. But ultimately, all of the that you know, if you consider. Oh, we're a university town type phrase. Suddenly, there's the risk that you're not going to be a university town because people aren't going to come to you in 20 years' time because they don't need to. Um, well, therefore, all that infrastructure for oh, we need pubs, we need restaurants, we need coffee shops, da, 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 suddenly just isn't going to be there because those houses are not going to be in demand because people are going to be staying at home. Um, And therefore,
1: like Gwynedd Council in Wales, look that far ahead and start to diversify and change now before it becomes a traumatic halt. Yeah, Uh, Um, interesting. And I think there's a very interesting article in The the Telegraph um, in September about how degrees are changing in nature. And Dr Charles Prince, who's director for the Centre for Student Success at the University of East London, says that these degrees in future are going to be completely employer-led and academia for academia's sake will end because the results that a student achieves at 21 will become redundant so quickly because they will not be relevant for employers. So you're now looking at stackable degrees becoming much more popular, i.e. study computer science and then go to your employer and whilst with your employer learn data management and data analytics because that is what is relevant to them.
0: Yeah, I I remember a a friend of mine was trying to help his daughter couple of years seven or eight years ago now she had a degree in geography and the advice i got back from several um companies that i spoke to on her behalf was first degree doesn't matter what's her master's in you know and you suddenly go ah yep so that that complies with with your thoughts there that um it it is real life issue that your first degree is no longer relevant um or sufficient to get you the job on its own
1: another challenged assumption isn't it because I was rather fond of my first degree but to be told that uh, irrelevant well that's the modern world and the, the economies the world over are changing so rapidly now that we're looking at the emergence of something called a lifelong degree where people need to upskill and reskill throughout their working lives and the way to you know obviously a great way to do that is 5G AI enabled distance learning in a university that has no physical structure. So I think this is a significant change that's coming in for higher education. Yeah, perfect. And uh, as many of our clients will say, hey, how many academics does it change, take to change a light bulb? The answer to which is what do you mean change? Um, they are Some higher education institutions are by nature relatively conservative but I think they're going to need to change radically and change early and treat this as an opportunity rather than a threat and I can certainly see um, universities with physical form lasting for some time, a couple of decades, but if you haven't also diversified into really top quality distance 5G enabled learning then you're, I think you're going to carry an increasing amount of risk of not surviving.
0: I don't- I'm just, um, you know, again, conscious that we're, we're eating into to our allotted time. But just to finish that, um, perhaps a timely observation, we had a, an email from my daughter's school um, last night. She's about to leave or, or at the end of this academic year, she'll be leaving. And they asked for a donation to buy a book for their library that would have a little note inside recording uh, our daughter's um, academic uh, time at the school. And it then just struck me, going back to something that we've discussed before, what is the point of stocking a library at a school with books, given that their books they need to study are are provided, when in, well, at the moment, the, the children at the school are using Kindle or online learning already. In 10 years' time, people aren't going to be going to libraries to get books if they are already. So in climate change type terms and in ways we learn, why would I want to go and donate some money to buy a book that needs to be produced, that uses up paper, um, that's going to sit on a shelf because the children in the school are going to go and get the online version, not the paper version. Because it's a library, they can't write all over the pages and make their sort of academic notes um, as you might do if it was your own personal copy. So it just, it all fits in together at the moment that people aren't thinking, where is the next five, 10 years going to take us, given the pace of change that we've had in the last decade, you know, the arrival of smartphones, etc., uh, you know, the quantum leap that we now see with technology. Um, no, you're absolutely,
1: you're absolutely right, Matthew. And, and I, I remain firmly convinced that this is a huge opportunity. And if you want to bring it down to a soundbite, Imagine being able to to treble your student numbers and therefore treble your student fees with no concomitant increased cost of accommodation and infrastructure. That's, That's where higher education institutions should be looking and should be considering. And I'm not saying every one of them is going to go for it. But I think if you don't consider it, then you are, as I say, going to carry an increasing amount of risk.
0: Good stuff. Okay. Thank you very much for, for, for those thoughts on higher education and where it where it might be leading. Um, the final topic that I just wanted to top on before we talk about the BCI uh, global conference at the start of the month um, was just something that I'm picking up uh, as a theme is global unrest and, and protests and so on. And obviously Hong Kong is, is very much in the news um, uh, at the moment long-running challenges there Uh, we also are aware of challenges um, in Baghdad and and southern Iraq uh, spilling over now into Iran protests over um, uh, fuel prices Uh, Chile Bolivia uh, hear reports of protests in India in Pakistan Um, you and obviously there's also potential for challenges Anywhere at the moment because of Extinction Rebellion and the climate um, crisis, uh, UK Brexit, what might that be? US impeachment, you know, and elections there. People's tolerance seems to be becoming shorter and shorter, um, potentially stoked by social media. But from a, a traveler or a business perspective, is this something that we should be worried about, or is this? business as usual, and it's always been there. Toby, any any thoughts before I carry on, or what do you think?
1: I I think unrest has always been present somewhere in the world, but there does appear to be a restiveness globally at the moment with lots and lots of protests going on, and I have nothing new to add that people won't already know, but I think it's worth restating anyway that always look at travel advice Always. Um, and are there good
0: sources that you'd recommend for that.
1: The the Foreign Office uh, travel advice is a great start. Okay. Um, and I think moving on from there, there are several uh, specialist providers uh, in the security world who, who do this sort of thing. But but also consider is your is your journey absolutely necessary? If it can it be done in in another way, and in the longer term, if you are reliant on supply chains in the areas that are affected, then you may need to consider taking a large decision early of moving your supply chain if you think the situation is just going to continue and to get worse.
0: Yeah, and I guess um, the other thing for for travel advice, um, you make sure you've got your insurance um, and that it's going to cover you for the area to which you are going because sometimes insurance companies can put out changes at short notice um, and their own travel advice uh, is often available on their websites. So so always worth just checking um, that your insurance is going to cover you to get out of somewhere at short notice if you need to change your flights, for example, um, who pays. Uh, and you know, this whole thing of of supply chain, um, it, it just comes back to that. If you only have one source of an, a critical item, that might be a risk um, sorry that is a risk but but it, it then just depends on your risk appetite and the volumes that you need how do you manage it etc but uh it's certainly i think something that that is is again worth a periodic check um you what is the future do your your pestle um, type analysis of of the region that you're in and just because that's what it was last year doesn't mean to say that's what it's going to be next year um uh, and and just checking those those political um environmental social technical legislative or legal and economic factors by spelling pestle um is is always worth doing so um no i'm, I'm as I say, I raised that as a short little item just that uh, it, it just struck me as um a theme that seems to be developing um with the ease that people now can pass messages of how to get together and so on. Um, to to protest. Um.
1: And I suppose from the other end of the telescope, Matthew, is not just your supply chain, if your market is, or a part of your market is located in one of those trouble spots, have analyzed what would happen to your revenue stream if that market was permanently and severely disrupted, i.e., it disappeared for some reason, um, and diversify, find other markets before you lose a 30 40% chunk of your revenue stream.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So so again, a huge topic, um, but if you are listening and it does, does apply, uh, please do do your research because you know, it's better to be forewarned um, for, for all of these things. Um, so finally, uh, Toby, you and I had the, the um, fun couple of days in London uh, at the BCI World Conference um, over the 5th and 6th of November. Um, and I, I just wonder whether there was was anything in particular that jumped out at you from that conference that you'd like to share or, or perhaps I can start and um, give you a chance to think about that rather than surprise you with it. Um, I was particularly taken with the Communicating Risk and Uncertainty presentation uh, that was um, absolutely brilliant. Professor Sir David holter, I think, um, based from the University of Cambridge. Um, and it was all about that. How do you present risk in a way that is understandable and clear? Um, and he referenced, for example, a poster in London that says 99% of um, London youth are not knife criminals, Well, or, or something similar, which suggests that therefore 1% are. And when you do the maths, that works out at 10,000 people. Well, clearly, there are not 10,000 knife-wielding young people in London so it's all about how do you present the statistics 99% looks good until you analyze it um, he also quoted uh, John Krebs who was the chair of the Food Standards Agency in 2000 to 2005 and some great advice that he gave him about communicating in a crisis um, and I think that's gonna probably feature as a blog of ours uh, in the next month or so but um, you know again it's that um, idea of most things have happened before find good practice and once you found it adapt it to suit your particular circumstances and John Krebs survived um, through a period of uh, great turbulence in food including obviously the foot and mouth crisis um, a certain amount of uh, churn and challenge over um, GM crops um, and I think there were one or two others as well during his time so he didn't have his trouble to seek um, and uh, you know, it won't be too surprising that he's now master of one of the colleges in Oxford and is now uh, Baron John Krebs for, for the work that he's done over his lifetime. So uh, a pretty good person to go to. But, but um, any, any thoughts or would you echo what I've said?
1: Absolutely. I listened to that presentation as well and I thought it was outstanding and I I fully intend to plagiarise lots of it in the future because it's just so engaging and you you think, how can data be that engaging? But it can in the right hands. And I think the other big takeaway from me was meeting Veronique Misguilow from the London School of Economics, who very kindly invited me to join the Higher Education Business Continuity Forum, which is a collaboration of a large number of higher education institutions, roughly 110, that get together once a year, share experiences, share good practice about business recovery, emergency response, crisis management, with the aim of instilling in people the ability to prepare and then emerge stronger from any crisis or any disruption. And I'm very much looking forward to the conference, which happens in March in Liverpool, March 2020 and it comes back to my, my point in this podcast that lots of disruptions to higher education institutions are happening at the moment and there are in the longer term big opportunities so I think the Higher Education Business Continuity Forum is a great opportunity and environment to explore those, meet other people in the same uh, line of work, share good practice etc etc so that was my big takeaway.
0: Yeah it's fantastic that a sector has come together um to share that good practice because it's um as i say there is very little that will be new um it might be new to me or it might be new to you but it doesn't mean to say that someone else hasn't experienced it um around the world and we're not in competition as higher education um sorry we're never in competition when it comes to safety of our staff safety of our employees safety of our students in their case Um, yeah absolutely good practice Um, Okay, that that, I think wraps up our our recording for for this, our eighth um, BCP podcast. Toby, thanks for taking the time to join us again um, uh, for this one. Really insightful uh, information there. Uh, If you are listening, we have done a couple of blogs in the past on um, the higher education uh, sector, um, one in April and one in July. Please do have a look at them if it's of interest. Uh, We have talked about AI before as well on our blogs and on our podcast. And sadly, flooding and infrastructure seems to be a reoccurring theme, um, looking at floods in Lancashire, the um, reservoir, potential flooding at at, uh, the Wally Bridge, and so on. So after only eight podcasts, it is becoming um, evident to, uh, to us that these are big issues and they aren't being addressed. Um, and so if you do have any feedback, um, we would like to hear it. Our, our email for this is bcp at But uh, But for now, thanks for listening and um, look forward to speaking to you again in December.